Thank you, Josh. I appreciate the kind words. Thank you so much. Grace Group, how's everybody doing tonight? It is an honor and a privilege to be back. Um, the, uh, the life of invitation is certainly a true thing. And anytime uh, a spiritual body extends an invitation to my spirit, I have to go. Because whenever God calls, that's where I go. Um, my name is Jared D. You threw me for a loop on that one. I usually go with a full name, but uh, uh, my name is Jared D. I am a recovered alcoholic. My sobriety date is September the 5th of 2015. For that, I am very, very grateful. And I got a, a munchkin who hopefully you, you may not hear, but she's in, a, in another room belting out Hamilton right now. So uh, <laughs> she's pretty dang grateful that daddy's a free man tonight. Um, I, uh, I introduce myself as recovered because it is the truth. It, uh, if you see it on the title page of our book, it's one of the first promises that will eventually come true for us as long as we are uh, honest and thorough with this program. I don't suffer from some sort of uh, false humility that I'm gonna be sick and suffering, always recovering, struggling one silly day at a time. I've taken 12 steps, I've had a spiritual awakening as the result of those steps and I no longer think about drinking. I no longer think about not drinking. Been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected, which means I can go anywhere on God's green earth, head up and shoulder square, an effective agent for God. Um, and that's a pretty cool deal. Going back to this, uh, this life of invitation is that, you know, there were plenty of times where people would call, uh, you know, back in, in my drinking days, people would call ahead and say, uh, you know, your husband's not coming, right? Or, or Jared's not going to be there, is he? And now, fortunately, through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and through God's grace, I get invited to go places. Um, I, the invitation has been extended to me to go all over the world to carry this message to, you know, across the states, even just across town. And it doesn't matter whether it's across the pond or across town, the message still remains the same because it comes out of the precise instructions found in this book entitled Alcoholics Anonymous. Now there's a big difference. The fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is exactly that. It's the fellowship. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous is found in the book. If you got a book, you know what, let's just go ahead and thumb on over here to There is a Solution. All right, down here at the bottom of the uh, second paragraph, it says, the feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us. But that, it's, that in itself would never have held us together as we are now joined. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. Right? So this fellowship is just, uh, is just one piece of the puzzle. Right? That's, that's, um, that's where our unity comes in. But if I'm top heavy in fellowship, then I'm just living on one side of this triangle that, uh, that used to be in our books. And, you know, think about it this way. Um, if you've ever tried sticking something together, you probably used uh, like uh, epoxy, right? You've got, it comes in two parts. You've got a hardener and then you got some resin, right? 
I can have all the resin in the world, all the fellowship in the world, but unless I got some hardener, I ain't sticking nothing together, right? And that's where the program comes in. That's where getting connected to God comes in so that I can uh, go out and I can bear witness to what he has done for me. That's the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? The 12 steps. And in this book, we have precise instructions on exactly how to do that. It tells me that in the forward of the first edition to show others precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. So we all know what precisely means, right? Exact, clear cut, no gray area, not up for interpretation. Ooh, yikes. You mean I don't need to go off and work my program or she doesn't need to go off and work her program? No, there is no my program. There is no her program. There is only the program, which is suggested as a program of recovery. If you want what we have, right, and are willing to go to any length, then it's suggested that you try this. The steps individually are not suggestive, which means I don't take my own little personal spin on them. Right? It's, it's very dogmatic in this approach because it's exactly how the first 100 did it. Right? It's exactly how they wrote it in the book. Why? Because this book was forged on the anvil of experience. They tried a number of ways back in the day to try to keep people sober and stay sober, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, and a lot of times they failed. Um, but that means that once they found something that worked, they put it in a book, this book, in black and white to give it away for fun and for free. That's a pretty cool deal. Um, I'll go ahead and, uh, and preface that I do not prepare for, for any talks. I, uh, I'm not saying that in a bragging way. I'm just saying that I try to, I try not to bring my mind into it. I'm grateful for that one minute of, uh, um, of silence or meditation before the meeting. How, how, how often have we been to a meeting and someone says, you know, uh, all right, let's do a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. All right. Moment of silence, serenity prayer. It's just right after it. We don't have enough time to bring God into it. Right. That's, that's what our meeting should be about. Like, uh, like my buddy Myers talks about, it. it should be a pep rally for the spirit, right? So we need a lot enough time in the, in the beginning to bring God into this. That's the whole reason why we're here. Um, so uh, let me see. Like I said, I don't prepare. And, you know, my sponsor taught me a, a prayer in the very beginning. First time I was asked to go speak somewhere. Um, I was really nervous and I asked him, I said, well, you know, what, what should I say? And he said, Jared, you know how to read, don't you? And I said, well, yes, sir. And he goes, well, read the dang book. You can't screw it up. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> That's pretty simple. He said, but check it out. I know that sounds too simple. Uh, say this simple prayer. God, guide my spirit, guide my words, guide their ears and their hearts. And so I do that so that hopefully I can get out of the way that God uses me as a vessel to speak through me to you. Um, and that's a pretty cool deal. I, um, you know, it's funny, kind of funny. I may have mentioned this the last time that I, I was here is that, you know, there's always three talks you're going to end up giving. It's the one when you're driving to the engagement, you're going, it's going on in your head and you're like, Oh yeah, I'm going to say this, man. I'm going to be cool. It's going to be, I'm going to be all lathered up and stuff. Then there's the talk that I give. And then there's the talk that I give when I'm on my way home from the engagement. You know, oh man, I should have said this. Oh, God, how could I have forgotten that? You know, but I, I know that I've probably done a good job uh, if I don't remember anything that I said. 
then that probably means that God was using me as a tool and that's great. I can't wait. Um, so one thing that, uh, that kind of comes to mind is, um, I know that many have heard, uh, that quote from, from Bill Wilson. I have it on a little sticker in my book that was given to me. Um, in 1942, Bill wrote, our chief responsibility to the newcomer is an adequate presentation of the, of the program, right? an adequate presentation of the program, not a half presentation, not a quarter presentation, not my own personal spin on the presentation. It's an adequate presentation of the program. And that means it's my responsibility for every newcomer that I end up uh, meeting is to lay out exactly what alcoholism is and lay out what the solution is, and then lay out precisely how I get from problem to solution. Um, and what we tend to find is there's this, there's this um, bridging of the division between the informed and the misinformed. And um, each step has an element about that. In the, in the first step, you know, it says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. Uh, I'll get into the mechanics of what that means here in a second. But what we tend to find is that there's this bridging of, of the division between ego and desperation. And throughout my adventures drinking, this, uh, this division gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, it says we were powerless over alcohol in uh, Roman numeral 28. Dr. Silkworth talks, to, talks about the, uh, this phenomenon of craving, this allergy. It says, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is the manifestation of an allergy. So what does that look like? Well, you know, um, well, to continue, in the phenomenon of craving exists in this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. What he's saying is, is he's using a term uh, that some people, some people tend to take offense to now, just he's, he likens it to an allergy, right? Um, an abnormal reaction to anything that my body comes in contact with. So let's say, for instance, I'm allergic to bees. Um, if I get stung by a bee, the way that this allergy manifests itself is my throat swells up. Maybe I got to get an EpiPen or run to the doctor or something like that whatever the reaction may be, it's beyond my physical and mental control. So when it comes to alcoholism, for the chronic alcoholic, once I put alcohol in my body, I cannot control the amount that I take after that. I'm off to the races. The reaction that I have is an abnormal one. Um, and that is beyond my physical control. Once I start, I cannot control the amount that I take after that and I'm off to the races. Fast forward to end-stage alcoholism, I can never control the amount that I take after that. It's lights out every single time. So that's this physical piece, right? Um, and the book gives a number, you know, a, a couple of tests that we could do to go out and try. Have I, do I have this physical piece? The simple question uh, to ask when we're qualifying somebody from a sponsorship standpoint is, can you control how much you drink every single time? Simple question. It's a yes or no one. Right. But then we have the main problem of the alcoholic, which centers in the mind on page 24. Um, and if you got a book, go ahead and thumb on over there too. It tells me, it says, the fact is that most alcoholics for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice in drink. 
our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent and we're unable at certain times, certain times, sometimes, occasionally. For me, usually the worst, the most worst possible time uh, to bring into my consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week to a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. So what is that telling me? It's telling me the moment that I stop drinking, the clock is ticking. I got a week to a month where my mind will pretty up a junkyard to take me back to the very thing that is trying to kill me. Um, step one is not telling me that I can't drink. Step one is saying, you are drinking. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Right? Dr. Harry Tebow, uh, if you've ever had a chance to uh, listen to any of his talks or read any of his books, he wrote extensively on this idea of uh, the reemergence of ego or the reconstruction of ego. I'll explain how that happens, uh, especially in an alcoholic and especially if there's any uh, new folks here. So let's, uh, I'll use an example. Um, there's a treatment center that I speak at like every Thursday. We go over there and plenty of times I've had uh, men approach me afterwards and like, man, I really like what you said. Thank you for coming. Uh, I'm, I'm desperate, man. I'll do you know anything you say. Will you take me through the work? And I'll say, yes, absolutely. We'll sit down and we'll wrap for a little bit. And I'll do what the book instructs me to is lend him a copy of the book and ask him to read it. Why? Because eventually I'm going to ask him if he wants to go to any length. He needs to know what any length looks like. So uh, we part ways. He's got my number. He can call me anytime. And I show back, uh, I show up next week. He's had a week to read the entire book or to 164, um, which is that's the basic text. There's no teaching points back in the stories. Um, he's reading, uh, he's read it, and now I show up on the second week, and I'm like, hey, buddy, how you doing? You know, do you end up reading whatever I asked you to read? And he was like, well, you know, uh, I, I just hadn't really had any time. Dude's in treatment for like 30, 60 days, 90 days, whatever, maybe even long term, and he hasn't had the time to read it in a week. Um, so I'm like, well, you still want to do this, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I definitely want to do it. Okay. We'll finish up and we'll talk about it next week. Okay, cool. Week three rolls around. I show up maybe even week four. And guess what? This dude's sitting in the back of the room. He's got his shades on. He's playing grab ass with some of the other guys or something like that. You know, he doesn't need me. Why? Because ego has reconstructed itself. His mind has now, uh, come to the forefront and told him that he was making just too hard of a deal of whatever this alcoholism is, uh, this thing is. Or perhaps he believes in self-knowledge. I've learned so much about uh, the inner workings of my mind. I've done my, uh, I've got my trigger list handy. I got my Gorski relapse prevention manual. I've done the Jahari window, you know, or whatever they end up doing nowadays. And you know what? This is cool. I've got this. So what's happened is that ego has reconstructed. It's fooled him. It's tricked him into thinking that it wasn't that bad, right? And that's going to work up until the point that it doesn't. And then he winds up back there or he gives me a call. And <clears throat> that's where this, uh, this idea of desperation needs to come from. People want to oh, say all the time, oh, well, you know, Honesty and willingness are, you know, the main points of step one. I get that. That's cool. And I respect that. But guess what? Give me desperation any day. Right? Desperation is the catalyst to honesty and willingness. 
that's where the division is bridged right there. When ego dies, when the ego is completely deflated, guess what I'm left with? Desperation. On September the 5th of 2015, I met a level of desperation that since then has not been matched, right? I was screwed and I totally knew it. I called up my sponsor and I said, uh, JK, uh, I'm ready to do this. I'll do whatever you tell me to. It, well, it, actually, I was like snotting and crying and stuff like that. It was more like, <laughs> you know, he probably didn't even understand a word I said. He just said, big boy, meet me, uh, meet me on the steps uh, at, back at PPG, you know, and we'll, we'll, you know, knock this out. But what had happened was that uh, alcohol had beat me into a state of reasonableness. It was at that point that I met desperation. Ego was gone and I crossed, crossed over from bridge to shore to desperation, which means that I was willing to do anything and everything. And that's why step one is so absolutely important. I mean, all the, all the steps are important. I don't wanna do them a disservice, but that um, it becomes more prevalent as I end up working through the steps. What do I mean by that is, um, you know, oftentimes I'll uh, get approached by dudes in treatment and they'll say, oh, well, I'm having a, a real problem with this, uh, you know, this ninth step, or I'm having a real problem with, uh, you know, uh, my fourth step, or I'm having a real problem with this God deal. And I simply look at them and I say, no, you're not, buddy. That's a step one problem. Right? Why? Because step one spells disaster, which means I will do anything and everything to not drink again, right? To get connected. Uh, and if that means going through a uh, series of drastic and revolutionary proposals to have a drastic upheaval, guess what? I'm on board, right? I'd do anything that you told me to. And so that kind of moves us into, uh, into step two. If step one tells me that, you know, that I'm basically screwed, then uh, simply by looking at my sponsor, he asked me a question. He said, do you believe there's a power working in my life that's keeping me sober today? And I said, yes, sir, absolutely. He said, you hope that power can work for me? I said, yes, I hope so. It better. Because now we're approaching this, uh, uh, this step two question from a, from a place of no choice, right? I have no choice whether I'm going to end up drinking or not. That decision is made for me. And so that means that there better be something there. Right? Because I'm out of options. I've done everything in the world to try to get sober. Tried doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists, switching from blondes to brunettes, um, moving places, you name it. Right? Uh, I was out of options and I was desperate. And so that propelled me through step two. And step three, we make a decision to turn our will and lives over to the care of God as we understand him. Right? As I understand him at that moment. The coolest thing about this is that um, my conception of this power, however inadequate, is just enough. A mustard, a mustard seed to move a mountain, right? It's just enough because what my idea of, of this power is in two and in three is not what it's going to end up being back at 11, right? This power grows with me and I grow with it. This conception, let's take a root word out of that, conceive. If a, if a tiny baby was conceived, it grows with the mother and the mother grows with it. It starts small and this thing ends up growing until it gives birth to something greater, to something vast, something that becomes closer to me than my own breath. It becomes the most important relationship I will ever have in my entire life. 
and I'll get more onto that a little bit later. But in step three, it's simply put, can I make a commitment? Can I make a decision to go through the rest of the work? It's not just about turning my will and life over to the care of God, as I understand him. If I knew how to do that at that time, it'd be a three-step program. You'd see me out on the street, and you're like, Jared, wait, what are you doing, buddy? Oh, just turning it over today. You know, no, it doesn't work that way, right? Making the commitment, going through the rest of the work shows me how to turn my will and life over to the care of God. How do I do a good third-step prayer? I get up off my knees with, uh, with my sponsor, and I start putting pen to paper, working on four. That's how I do a good third step. Right? That's how I show God that I'm willing to go at any length. Because this concept of this power, pardon me, that's given to us at that time, they give us several different definitions. Right? Father, child, right? director, actor, um, and the agent, and you know, all of that good stuff. They're, they're giving us, tossing out ideas of how to formulate this relationship or how this relationship is now going to move uh, between me and God. And uh, the coolest part about this is one of my favorite lines on 63. <clears throat> if you got a book, go ahead and turn it over there. If, uh, if you got a pen or highlighter, or whatever, my suggestion would be to certainly highlight this because this is my most favorite sentence in the entire book. And it becomes true. Uh, it's just as true back then as it was, uh, as it still is today. <clears throat> it says being all powerful. He provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. JK, my sponsor, told me, he said, all right, big boy, highlight it, underline it, live it. That is your job description until the day you die. So that means today, no matter what. No matter what, my job is to stay close to God and perform his work well. So if I do those two things, it says that I'm going to get all that I need. So if I do those two things, what else do I need? Nothing. Wow. That's pretty dang simple. Right? The book by drunks, written for drunks, they knew we were going to screw it up, right? And so they kept it as simple as possible. Simple but not easy, right? By this time, ego is still getting chipped away at, you know? Um, so I'll come back to this here in a little bit. So then we move on to, uh, you know, a vital and crucial step as, as the book uh, describes it. Vital meaning life giving whenever I do it. Life threatening whenever I don't. We're about to uncover, discover, and discard some of the things within me that have been blocking me off from fully experiencing God. Right? Old ideas and misconceptions and perceptions of who I am, um, who I think God is what I'd feel uh, in relationships, things of this nature, right? Um, the book likens it to um, an inventory uh, or a, a commercial inventory. So if you think about it this way, just to kind of not to breeze over this, there's just a few points that I want to touch on is if anybody's ever worked for a company, better yet, raise your hand. Have you ever worked for a company that you've actually had to go take inventory at? Anybody? Yep. I got a few hands up. Okay. So if you take an inventory uh, at this business, do you want to spend like weeks or even months going in and just taking inventory, looking at shelves and counting stuff? You know, yeah, we got eggs. We've got gum. Okay. No, <laughs> I want to go in on a Saturday morning for a couple of hours, knock it out 
and go home and spend time with the wife and kiddo. That's exactly what this is. So many times whenever you, if you're in a meeting, you tell people, oh, I'm working on my fourth step. People are like, oh my goodness, bless your soul. You know, they're throwing Hail Marys at you and all this kind of stuff. And they make it out to be the worst thing in the world. But check it out. I'm about to uncover the stuff that has been eating my lunch for years, for decades, right? It's, it's not a, like a, an insanely glorious event, but I'm actually eager to do it. Why? Because this desperation was still fresh. On day nine of sobriety, I had already finished my fourth step and I sat in front of my sponsor at, at like seven in the morning, ready to do my fifth step. Uh, we came across a lot of stuff. I found out a lot of truths and I went home and I spent my hour um, reflecting and you know doing all the things that the book talks about. and. Um, reapproaching my paperwork and, and, you know, and all that good stuff. I saw a lot of things that were objectionable. Matter of fact, everything was objectionable. I had lived an, an objectionable life for 35 years up to that point. And the coolest thing in the world was about to happen. Uh, I was about to bridge the division between my will and God's will between all the things that were blocking me off from being full of selfishness, self-centeredness, a slave uh, in the bondage of self, I was now about to be emptied out. All I had to do was to be willing. And most of us, I have not met one person really who is not necessarily willing at that point. Perhaps we come to a point where I'm maybe not willing to have all of me, right? And that, if that's the situation, then perhaps some more work needs to be done. But because this desperation was absolutely fresh, I was ready to go. How do I do a good six? I hit my knees and do a seven-step prayer. It's that simple. Pretty dang simple. How do I do a good seven-step? Well, I put pen to paper and start writing an eight-step list. How do I do a good an eight-step? Well, guess what? I'm going to go door-to-door and start knocking out amends, all right? But one thing that I want to touch on in this, uh, let me see if I have it here. I don't even know if you guys may not be able to see this. Ah, I have it. So I drew this a long time ago. You may not be able to see it. I'll hold it up here. Um, If you can see it, that's a coffee cup, right? So picture this. Picture this. Uh, I am this coffee cup. The vessel is the coffee cup. Within it are all sorts of old ideas, misconceptions and perceptions, the selfishness, the self-centeredness, all the stuff all over page 52. That's everything that makes me up, right? This is a 35-year-old cup of coffee. Would anybody here drink a 35-year-old cup of coffee? No, why not? Check it out. If you can see in the picture, like I said, I drew this a long time ago. There's a little fly flying around. There's some aroma coming off. That's not aroma. That's stank. Okay. There's a little hair hanging out of it. All of that stuff is the stuff that makes me up. Is there anything wrong with the vessel? Is there anything wrong with the cup? There's absolutely nothing wrong with the cup. And throughout this process, I'm given the opportunity because of desperation that it was a catalyst for the willingness and the honesty to get to the point that I am to ask God to empty me out. 
of all of the stuff within me that are blocking me off from experiencing him, from getting connected to the power, from feeling the power. God makes that happen. There's no way of getting rid of selfishness without his help. I must have his help. Right? Anything else is self-help. We know exactly how that works. Right? I need to have God's help. And because of this process, I'm now emptied out. The cup is cleaned out and it's made to put fresh liquid in it. Right? And every time that I go off and I carry this message of myself, and I go on a 12-step call or I go to you know, help sit knee to knee with a newcomer, I get filled up again. And I'm able to empty back out into this, into this new man or this new woman, the person I'm sitting knee to knee with, right? To transmit what God has given to me so freely. That's a pretty cool deal. We find that in six and seven, this becomes our first step for life, our first step for living. Back on page 59, it says we stood at the turning point. Now, I don't really believe that it's um, that this turning point is just at, you know, step three. I believe that's something that we're approached with every single day. From the moment I wake up, I'm faced with this turning point. This is the, this is the element that I do have a choice with. I can choose to get up and hook it up with God. I can choose to do a 10th step. I can choose to do prayer and meditation. I can choose to go off and carry this message. I can choose to practice these principles in all of my affairs. The moment that I don't choose, as quickly as I work through the steps, I work backwards through the steps. And that's a pretty scary deal. So I had mentioned in, in the beginning this idea of, of bridging the division. In, in these ninth step amends, uh, it, it seems to me now that it's kind of coming to me is that that's kind of the theme for this, this whole talk is bridging the division, right? Not only bridging the division between the misinformed and the informed, but bridging the division between being asleep and being awake, from being, uh, from lacking of spirit to full of spirit, to being without God to having God, from no power to having power. And miraculous things can happen during this immense process. Just a couple of little sidebar things is that by definition, amends means to make right. I'm, I'm about to go out and make things right. I'm going to set right the wrongs. I'm going to make restitution. Pardon me. Or better yet, reparations. Okay? I'm not approaching somebody and apologizing. I'm not approaching somebody and saying that I'm sorry. If you're close to me in my life, chances are you already know that I'm sorry. I'm a sorry SOB. You know I'm sorry, you know, since the day that I was born. But what am I going to do? A, a remorseful mumbling that I'm sorry, it just ain't going to fit the bill, right? I need, to, I need to bear witness to what God has done for me. I need to demonstrate through my actions, right, and through my spirit. So much so that whatever I'm doing speaks so loud you can't hear a word that I'm saying. When I approach someone to make these amends, I tell them that I've done this. I get specific. This is the way that, I'm hard, that I've harmed you. I sincerely regret treating you like that, and nobody deserves to be treated that way. What can I do to make that right between us? Right. But the coolest part is that after that amends is made, better yet, that, okay, so this just came to me, when the amends are made, right, there has been now healing that has happened on both sides. I didn't do that. 
All I did was suit up and show up with a spirit of willingness, right? I showed up to these people ready to set right any, make, any mistakes that I had made in the past. God does his perfect work. Um, I think who was it, Tom I, that, who said, when faith and preparation collide, the results are what God can do, right? All I do is I get prayed up, show up to this person, and ask them what I can do to make these things right, and guess what? God starts building bridges. He's laying bricks so that I can hop over to the other side, and that person can hop over to my side too, and guess what? Now we're one, right? We've made the human connection. We've made the spiritual connection. And that's a pretty cool deal. Years uh, of, let's say, prejudice or resentment, anger, uh, all of these things are melted away in a matter of seconds, minutes. And what I was going to get at is that at, at the end of this amends, oftentimes, uh, if, you know, if, if you've made a good handful, you might have experienced somebody asking you several questions. They may say, man, what happened to you? Well, guess what? Now I get a chance to tell them my story. Now they, they get a chance to get the whole picture of what was going on. Um, moreover, someone may ask, what is, this, what is this thing called alcoholism? Now I get to bridge the division between the informed and the misinformed. We know that there's a world of people out there with misinformation. They see what they see on, on TV. Maybe they're watching a, a Criminal Minds episode and they hear about what they think alcoholism is or people sitting around in a little chair and they're like, oh yeah, my name's Jared. I'm just glad to be sober today. You know, that ain't what AA is. And that's not what alcoholism is. But guess what? Now I get to lay out what alcoholism really is. An illness of the mind and of the body. Uh, connected with the spiritual malady and the process in which I have to go through in order to get free, not to get relief. I ain't talking about relief. I'm talking about freedom, right? And that's a cool deal. People get intrigued, you know? And not only that, at the end of these amends, I get a chance to offer to be helpful. As part of my recovery, my job is to help other people who were struggling just like I was. Here's my name and number. Pass it, pass it along to anybody who needs some help, right? Now we get to approach some of my favorite things to talk about, which is 10 and 11. If you got a book, matter of fact, let's uh, thumb on over here to uh, page 84. All right. So everybody knows that uh, <clears throat> you go over anywhere in AA land and you see on the wall, uh, the promises, right? The promises. You got to say that in announcer voice because somehow it's been, you know, lately it's been sold as the desire chip promises, you know, like this is what, what's going to happen to me as soon as I walk in the door and pick up a desire chip. No, this is what happens as I'm going through step nine. Right? But guess what? There's prayers and promises all along the way with each of these steps. Each and, each and every one of them are pretty righteous in their own regard. Right? But now we're about to get to some really cool promises. Okay? The ones down here on, uh, on 84. But before we get to that, I want to uh, talk more about this 10th step. So check it out. Is The steps are meant to be worked rapidly. 
I think we could probably all be in agreement with that, right? They use words all throughout the book. Next, at once, immediately, vigorous, right? This ain't a step a month club, okay? I was talking to a guy the other day. Uh, as a matter of fact, that was yesterday. He was telling me, oh, I'm, I'm four months sober and now I'm on my fourth step. I'm like, oh my goodness. I would throw Hail Marys on him, you know? Poor guy, if lack of power is my dilemma, then I need to get to the power as fast as possible. Why? Because I'm battling this and I'm battling ego, my worst enemies, okay? So it goes on to tell us here on 84, it says, this thought brings us to step 10, which suggests that we continue to take personal inventory, continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commenced this way of living as we cleaned up the past. Hmm. As soon as I start making some amends, guess what? I'm in 10, 11, and 12 for the rest of my life. It tells me right there. Can't argue with that. First amends, 10, 11, and 12. Um, as part of my story, if, if you were here the last time that I spoke, you may remember this, but on day nine of sobriety, I kind of already mentioned that uh, uh, I did my fifth step, went home, and I did six and seven. By lunchtime, I've made an eight-step list. I called my sponsor. I got some approvals to go off and uh, make a couple of amends that day. Um, and lo and behold, when I'm on my way home from these amends, someone called and said, hey, Jared, you want to come with us? We're going up to Homeward Bound tonight to go carry the message. You should come. I'm like, absolutely, dude. I wouldn't miss it for the world. So guess what? I'm flying up there to Homeward Bound at some treatment center down here in Dallas. And uh, if I did I have anything to transmit? Probably not. You know, I'm on day nine of sobriety, but check this out. I didn't speak out of the book or anything like that. I waited till the end. And I gathered up all of those guys around there and I shared my experience with them of what had happened to me that day. Right? That's exactly what I had to transmit. I couldn't even form like proper sentences because my eyes weren't even pointing in the right direction. I'm still sweating out whiskey and fruit punch four locos by that time. Right. And so I, sh I shared my experience with what had happened to me that day with those guys. And those guys were amazed. They were like, what? wait a minute, nine days, you can't do that or whatever. And I'm like, guys, it just happened. You know, it's just what happened. I got in my truck that night and it sounds really cliche, but my truck wheels never touched the ground. And I knew at that point I did not have to pick up another drink. And since then, I have not even thought about drinking. It does not occur for me. Okay. Um, and I closed up that night with some, uh, some evening inventory uh, in 11. And the rest is history. Right? So here, back in 10, it, uh, it says, here's the kicker. Oftentimes people will say, oh, well, um, you know, doing doing step 10 is basically just doing four through nine all over again. That's true to an extent, but check it out. The key word lies in the following sentence, right? We have entered the world of the spirit. Ah, interesting. Now we've bridged the division from being asleep to being awake. Anthony Dumelo talks about this. I'm spiritually asleep dreaming that I'm awake. Now I'm awake to a great many things. I'm, a, I'm awake to the things that I had admitted were objectionable on my, uh, on my fourth step. Right? I can recognize these things. I'm no longer asleep to them. I know what resentment looks like. I know what fear looks like. Uh, I know what selfishness and self-centeredness looks like. So now I'm awake to these. And I get a chance to look out for these things all throughout the day. 
Now, a 10th step is often confused with doing nightly inventory, which, is, which talks about when we retire at night, right? They're not the same thing. Step 10 is in the immediacy. That is right now, right? Uh, who was it? Mark, Mark Houston used to say, you know, if I'm, in the, if I'm in the middle of the road and an 18-wheeler comes at me, now is not the time to put pen to paper. Time is to, is to get out of the road, right? So that I don't get smashed by the 18-wheeler, okay? Save the pen and paper for later on that evening. What I need to do is get out of the way so that God can do his perfect work. So it gives us plenty of action words here in the, uh, in the next sentence. It says, our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. Continue to watch. There's our first action word for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately, and we make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone that we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. I've got five action words that tell me precisely how to do a 10th step. If I leave one of those out, guess what? I ain't doing a 10th step. I have to follow them precisely and in order, right, for this to become effective. The more action that I take, the more faith that I get. The more faith that I get, the, more, the better that I can go out and transmit God's love to somebody else. Okay, love and tolerance of others is our code. Oftentimes, we'll let the, uh, the newcomer or whoever just go off scot-free saying whatever they want to uh, with some sort of old ideas or some middle-of-the-road treatment center silliness. And people don't want to stop them. People don't want to correct them. We become too politically correct. Oh, love and tolerance of others is our code. No, I will not sacrifice the truth under the guise of love and tolerance. I will not sacrifice your feelings for the truth. Right? It is my job and it is my responsibility to deliver an adequate presentation of this program. If it goes against what the book is saying, I'm going to let you know. So moving into uh, some of these promises, it says we cease fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For this time, sanity will have returned. The promise of step two has come true for me. Right? We will seldom be interested in liquor. And if tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. If tempted, if, right? not when, if, right? that's a really, really big if. I've heard people say plenty of times, oh, well, if, you, um, you know, if you've been sober that long and you haven't thought about drinking or you say you haven't thought about drinking, you're lying. What? <laughs> what? How on earth is someone else to know how God will show up in my life? Matter of fact, that would be pretty dang arrogant. For me to assume that I know how God is going to show up in your life, right? God's everything or else he's nothing. Am I right? God's everything. Don't you suppose that in a world of everything, right? Of a being that can do anything that is all power can probably, you know, keep me from thinking about drinking as long as I, you know, continue to do some simple work, help out his kids, that kind of stuff. I'd like to think so. So moving on, they, they just completely rip us up with all sorts of awesome promises. They talk about the problem being removed. It no longer exists for us, right? Removed, recovered. The obsession has been removed, right? You even hear people talking about, oh, I'll always be powerless. I don't think the book ever says that. 
I think the book says that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. I will die an alcoholic, but I'll die a recovered alcoholic, right? We gain great power in this program with God working through us, the power to avert death and misery for others. Now, that's a pretty cool deal, right? So think of this process of 10 and 11 and even 12 as reciprocal. They feed off of each other. If I'm not doing one, I cannot be doing the other, right? Think of myself as a tree. My roots have now grasped new soil. And what do I need to do? The tree has to continue to grow. I'm not maintaining the tree. It's growing, right? These steps are the growing steps. So what do I need to do? I need to continue to prune the tree in 10. I also have to continue to feed and to water the tree. And that's what I do in step 11, right? How much time am I spending with God? How much time am I spending feeding and watering and caring for this tree? Right? Am I just spending 10 seconds, you know, uh, you know, talking to God when I'm backing out of the driveway and then hitting the road or maybe praying and meditating on the way to work in the car? Oh my goodness, don't, please don't, right? I need to be practicing fidelity to God. How much time am I spending with God, right? Am I claiming God with my lips or do I claim God with my actions? As I had said before, the most important relationship I will ever have in my entire life. Uh, more important than the one that I have with my daughter, one of, more important than the one that I have with my buddies, uh, than with you guys, because without this relationship, I will have no other relationships. It's plain and simple, right? So now I have to continue to feed and water it. And in step 12, right, what is the fruit that this tree is producing? If I'm not doing 10 and I'm not doing 11, the only thing I have to transmit is sickness, is bad fruit, right? But if I'm doing a good 10, if I'm doing a good 11, and I have conscious contact with God, guess what? The fruit brings life, right? And now I've bridged the division between death and life. And that is a pretty cool deal, you know? What, a, what I, I hope that you don't confuse my passion for arrogance because, um, I came from middle of the road AA. I thought all AA was the same. And I floundered and almost died three times over because someone didn't pull me aside and tell me what I was dying from and how to get better, right? I have a strong passion for this program. I have a strong passion for the words in this book. Why? Because every single day they bring new meaning, right? They bring new meaning to me. And it is our responsibility, like Sam Shoemaker, just to stand at the door ready, right? I am responsible. We've got all of these statements, and I'm not saying this as a, as a pep talk or anything like that, you know what I mean? This isn't, uh, you know, Tony Robbins, you know, persevere and all that. No, this ain't that. This is what we get a chance to do. We get a chance to go out and avert death, avert death and misery for others. We get a chance to transmit a message that brings life. We get a chance to act as a conduit to get somebody connected to a power greater than themselves, right? A power that to them will eventually become closer to them than their own breath, right? This is a cool deal. Each and every single one of you has a voice. How lucky are we? How lucky are we that we, I see people from, we got California and Ohio and Kentucky 
in DC, in New Jersey, in all of this stuff. How lucky are we that we get a chance to join together in brotherly and harmonious action to talk about a common solution, right? And not only that, to get out there, uh, to continue every single day to chop wood, carry water, stay close to God through prayer and meditation and perform his work well, work in self-sacrifice for others. And because of that, we get every single thing that we need, right? But that motive becomes secondary because giving freely of myself so that others may live, that's something that money cannot buy. That's freedom, my friends. I'm not talking about relief. I'm talking about freedom. And with that, I want to thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. I love each and every single one of you. Y'all rock. I'll put my info in the chat. And uh, if you want to contact me or anything like that, or just maybe throw stones, you're welcome to do that too. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. And thank you once again to Josh and the Grace Group. God bless.